Today's uh, scripture um, comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. If you're using the Pew Bible, it is on page 984. Again, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, and that is on page 984 in the Pew Bible. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival of, or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensual, sensual, sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligament, grows with the growth from, that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they, as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed uh, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we pray now for your spirit to accompany the reading and preaching of your word that our hearts might be moved and ministered to and that we might come away with a greater faith and a greater obedience to you and your word. We pray this for your glory and the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's passage brings to mind Plato's famous allegory of the cave. When Paul used the imagery of shadow and substance in verse 17, he very well could have been drawing from Plato's work, which preceded him by a few centuries. If you remember back to your college philosophy class, You'll recall that in Plato's allegory, he describes prisoners who are trapped in a cave from birth. And so the inside of the cave is all the reality they've ever known. He describes them as being chained up in such a way that they can only face the back of the cave, the back wall, and behind them, there's a fire burning. And between the prisoners and the fire, someone is holding up objects that cast a shadow onto the back wall. And so they see the shadow of a rock or the shadow of a tree or a dog or a fellow person. And from all of these shadows, the prisoners develop all types of stories and theories and philosophies of life. They form realities based on the shadows on the wall not realizing 
that they're just illusions of real objects, of the substance, of the real rock and the real tree, the real dog, the real person. Now, in Plato's allegory, there's one prisoner who somehow is freed, and he exits the cave to, to see the substance, to see the reality for the very first time. He sees the substance and not merely the shadow of a rock or a tree. And then he goes back into the cave and he tries to convince his fellow prisoners that they've constructed a reality based on shadows. But as the story goes, he has a very difficult time convincing anyone. They are so persuaded that what they see on the wall is reality. Now, in our text, in Paul's situation, It's similar, but at the same time a bit different. When he writes to the Colossians, he's not writing to a bunch of people that he believes are imprisoned, still chained and immobilized with their faces glued to the back wall. No, he is writing to Christians who have been liberated who have been freed from the chains of sin and condemnation. They're the ones who have seen the substance which belongs to Christ. And yet, and yet somehow they are under the influence of false teaching and they're being tempted to crawl back into the cave to subject themselves once more to mere shadows. And Paul can't believe it. Paul can't believe their willingness to entertain shadows when they've already experienced the substance. But this is where we are. This is where we are in the book of Colossians. As you recall, Paul began in chapter 1 arguing for the supremacy of Christ over all things because here in chapter 2, he's building on that in order to argue now for the sufficiency of Christ in all salvation. The presenting problem in this book is that there is a false teacher who's been influencing the Colossian church, teaching that having a relationship with Jesus is crucial, it's important, but it's not enough. If you want to experience the fullness of God in salvation, then you need to depend on Jesus and at the same time maintain some system of spirituality that was being advocated. And as we've seen in the last few weeks, Paul has been making a sustained argument that Christ is a sufficient Savior, that faith in Christ is truly all you need to grow in godliness and to experience the fullness of salvation. Now, in today's passage, the emphasis on Christ being a sufficient Savior is still there, but what we get today is a closer look at the falsehoods that were being taught. Commentators still aren't sure how to classify the false teaching with any known ancient cult, but there are a few clear indicators in our text demonstrating what was being taught in those days. And so I'd like to look at three aspects of the false teaching and really to consider their appeal, what makes them so attractive. The Colossians were drawn into falsehood by three things. And if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. There's an outline listing these three things. First, they were drawn by a devotion to law-keeping. Second, they were drawn by a pursuit of mystical experiences. And third, they were drawn by commitment to severe self-discipline. 
Let's consider how, <coughs> excuse me, let's consider how we can be drawn into falsehood by a devotion to law-keeping. This here is the appeal of legalism, and we see it emphasized in verse 16. Look at verse 16 again. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in regards, in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, the singular relative pronoun here in verse 16, and as well as the singular masculine pronoun in verse 18, suggests for us that there was at least one primary false teacher influencing the Colossians. And apparently, he was passing judgment on believers. He was judging them to be unacceptable before God unless they abide by Old Testament laws regarding ceremonial cleanliness. You see, there were particular laws in the Torah that regulated whether a person was considered to be clean or unclean, particularly in regards to temple worship. And so they typically had to do with uh, dietary restrictions, the observances of annual holidays, and of course, the observance of a weekly Sabbath. If you maintain these practices, if you keep these Old Testament laws, you would remain clean. But, of course, if you were to fail to observe these laws, it would then leave you to be unclean and unworthy to approach God in temple worship unless you subjected yourself to ritual cleansing and sacrifice, and then you could be made clean again. So this was standard practice, standard fare in the old covenant for the people of God. But by the time you get to the new covenant, for God's people under the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we are now liberated from these laws regulating ceremonial cleanliness. That means there are no kosher laws for Christians. There are no Sabbath regulations binding upon us by law. And yet, and yet even though we have this freedom, this liberty under the new covenant, here you have in Colossians a mostly Gentile church so ready to let someone pass judgment on them and to subject them to these Old Testament laws, even though they're Gentiles. And it means that it wasn't part of their upbringing. It wasn't part of their culture. And yet they were so willing to be subjected. Why? What's the appeal? What's the attraction regarding legalism? Well, just think about it. Think about the appeal of legalism. Legalism makes things so much simpler. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me how to conduct myself, how, how to behave. It is, it is so much simpler and straightforward when your acceptability, when your worthiness is based on external conformity to rules. Because Doing the heart work, examining your heart, is hard work. D discerning your heart motives, having to really consider what's going on inside, that's no easy thing. If we can just avoid that altogether, if we can just focus on actions, if we can just focus on behavior, on questions of food and drink, new moons and a Sabbath, it just makes Christianity simpler. It's easier 
to avoid ingesting unclean foods than to avoid internalizing unclean thoughts. It's so much easier to avoid doing work for one day than to find true rest and true dependence on God. So this is why legalism, it's a perennial problem for Christians of all generations. Our fleshly instinct is to avoid dealing with heart issues, really getting down to the motives of the heart, and we just gravitate towards external conformity. We gravitate towards law-keeping, placing our hope and our confidence on how well we keep the rules. It's so much easier to measure yourself that way. It's so much easier to compare yourself that way. But look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. Paul says, These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul's point is that these ceremonial laws found in the Old Testament, they are mere shadows that point to Christ. When they were first given, the laws showed you how to be acceptable to worship God in his temple, assuming that the temple was a physical place. But by the time you get to the New Testament, the idea of The temple as a place begins to recede into the background and is replaced with the idea of the temple as a person. Christ is presented for us as the new temple where the fullness of God dwells. So if you want to worship God, if you want to be in God's presence, you don't go to a place. You go to a person named Jesus. You enter not a building but a relationship with Christ, and suddenly you are now clean. You are acceptable to worship God. And now that the substance which belongs to Christ can be seen clearly in full light, the shadows are receding. So why why in the world would you still bother with ceremonial laws? Why would you bother with shadows when you're standing in front of the substance. Let's picture with me this scenario. Imagine a a husband who has been long separated from his long-lost love, his wife. For all these years, the only thing he has to remember her by is a worn-out photo, a photo that he keeps neatly folded and in his pocket close to his chest. He It's a photo that he takes out every night and he looks longingly at it and then he puts it back into his pocket. Now imagine, years go by, but finally, somehow he is reunited with his beloved wife. Now wouldn't you consider it strange if he finally has her by his side, but for some reason he keeps stealing glances at his worn-out photo? Wouldn't it be strange if he spends more time staring at his, his beloved photo than staring into the actual eyes of his beloved wife? Well, that's exactly what the people of God do when we mistreat the Old Testament law, when we treat the law as the substance of the matter. These ceremonial laws, they should be beloved, they should be revered, But like that worn-out photo, they serve their purpose. 
Now that you have the substance, now that we have Christ, we can put those laws aside. But of course, of course, it's easier said than done. Because, as we've said, law-keeping is so instinctive to us. Legalism is our bent. Now, maybe you've never considered yourself a legalist. Maybe some of you are just so new to Christianity, you're not even sure which laws are in the Bible that you should be tempted to, 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 to be legalistic about. But in the end, in the end, all of us have legalistic tendencies. We are all legalists in the flesh. And you want to know how you can tell? Just consider that nagging feeling that you often feel that you're being observed, living under a microscope. You're like, you're always being evaluated. You, you feel like you're, you're constantly under trial. You're constantly being cross-examined. Everything you do, everything you say is providing evidence, either for the prosecution or the defense. And some days you feel like you're winning that trial. Other days you feel like you're losing it never seems to end. But Paul has the answer. The open secret is to remember that in Christ, the trial is over. Judgment has been passed on Christ, on the cross. We saw Paul say that last week in the verses immediately prior to our passage. He said, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Our sin debt was canceled by Jesus nailing it to the cross. Jesus lived the righteous life that we should have lived. Jesus died the, the death for sin that we should have died. And therefore, the verdict of God is in. And you have been declared righteous and forgiven if you have hidden yourself in the righteous one. Jerry Bridges, in his books, he often speaks of there being two courts, the court of heaven and the court of the conscience. And for Christians, our trial in the court of heaven is over. When you trust in Christ for salvation, the court of heaven is satisfied. There is now no condemnation in Christ. There will never be a guilty charge laid against a Christian in the court of heaven. But in the court of the conscience, Christians are often waylaid by feelings of guilt every single day. We feel like we're not good enough, and there's no way that God would accept us in the state that we're in. This, this is how we feel, but this is where Christians have to live by faith and not by sight. One of the disciplines of the Christian life is preaching the gospel to yourself every day to realign what's playing out in the court of your conscience with what has already been declared in the court of heaven. And you do that by first agreeing with your conscience regarding your guilt and your unworthiness, but then remembering that Christ has borne your guilt on the cross and he has made you worthy by his gift of righteousness. Friends, the, the draw of legalism is strong, but the gospel is stronger. 
Christians have to stop living like we're still in court. It's just like how prisoners freed from Plato's cave need to stop trying to crawl back into the cave, dealing with just mere shadows instead of enjoying the true substance which belongs to Christ. Friends, that's the first appeal. The first appeal in the false teaching going around in Colossians is the appeal of legalism. The second is the appeal of mysticism. The Colossians were drawn into falsehood by a pursuit of mystical experiences. We see this in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now, verse 18 is a notoriously difficult verse to both translate and to interpret. I read a lot of pages this week on just this one verse. I don't want to bore you with all the different arguments. So let me just give you what I think is the best explanation that best incorporates the larger context of this letter. And it comes from a recent commentary that was written by G.K. Beale. And he points out that phrase there, going on in detail about visions, And he goes on into detail about how that is a claim of access to peer into the heavenly sanctuary where God and his angels abide. Uh, If you have the Christian Standard Bible translation, the CSB, that that version captures the idea of this when it describes the false teachers as, quote, claiming access to a visionary realm. So, Not only was this false teacher passing judgment on the Colossians for their failure to keep Old Testament ceremonial laws, he was also disqualifying them. He was condemning them for not pursuing the same kind of spirituality that has got him so puffed up with spiritual arrogance. Most likely, he was insisting on certain ascetic practices like extreme fasting of food and drink, in order to induce a trance-like state conducive for experiencing ecstatic visions. And so this teacher was probably claiming to, to be able to have these visions of a heavenly sanctuary to see where God uh, abides, just like in Isaiah chapter 6, to see the Lord on his throne with all the angels all around him. That's why there's mention here of angels, and, and there's definitely a degree of idolatry in his attitude towards these angels. But the main issue here is that this false teacher was claiming that to have a deeper, fuller experience of God, you need to have this mystical encounter, and you would be disqualified. You would be considered spiritually inadequate if you can't claim the same thing. So the pathway for spiritual growth, according to this false teaching, would necessarily include these kinds of mystical experiences. Now, friends, let's consider, what's the appeal of that? What's the appeal of that kind of teaching? Why would an insistence on mystical experiences as an essential component of spiritual growth, why would that be attractive? What's the appeal? Well, you probably felt it yourself. For for those of you who have been in the church for a long time, it's so easy to get familiar with Christ and the gospel. And we feel like we want to move on to to something deeper, something meatier. 
We, we tend to treat the gospel like it's the ABCs of the faith. It's the elementary truths that you need to know in the beginning, but then you're supposed to move on to, to deeper truths and deeper experiences. So anytime a popular preacher or a popular book claims to have a deeper insight or offer you a deeper experience of the faith, it appeals to our fancy for novelty, for something new, something different. We, we, we want to experience God in ways that go beyond what we have encountered in Scripture. We want personal visions, personal dreams. We want private revelation from God speaking just to us. Now, friends, the concern here is not whether experiences like these are legitimate today. I mean, obviously God has given visions of a heavenly sanctuary to people in the past like the prophet Isaiah. Obviously he has done that before, but whether he still does that today is an entirely different question for an entirely different sermon. Let's just focus on what Paul's concerned about here in this text. His concern is when these deeper pathways being promoted are disconnected from Christ. They won't lead to deeper growth if they do not lead you to Christ. Look at verse 19. This is where he says, the false teacher is puffed up and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Paul's point is that spiritual growth only comes from God and his grace in the gospel of Christ, who is the head of the church. And so any kind of spiritual experience being championed that in the end minimizes Christ or presents to you a Christ that conflicts with how he is revealed to you in Scripture, whatever experience that is, that experience is going to draw you further and not closer to God. I realize that we may not be tempted by the same forms of ancient mysticism like the Colossians. But friends, I, I think we do share the longing for novelty in the faith. I think the big question is whether or not we truly believe that trusting in the Christ of the gospel is sufficient for growth and godliness. Do you believe that trusting in Jesus is all that you need to experience the fullness of your salvation? If you go the in, your entire Christian life never experiencing a mystical vision, never having a prophetic dream, never receiving a private revelation, if all you experience is reading your Bible worshiping with your church and trusting in the Jesus of the gospel that you hear preached to you week in and week out, would that be enough? Is that sufficient for you? Or would you feel lesser? Would you feel spiritually inadequate because you didn't have these kinds of mystical experiences? If you feel that way, friends, then Paul would say to you, do not let anyone disqualify you. Because if you are in Christ, if you are holding fast to him by faith, then you are qualified. All 
you need to grow up into spiritual fullness and maturity is yours in Christ. So friends, we've seen the appeal of legalism, the appeal of mysticism. The third is the appeal of asceticism. The Colossians were drawn into falsehood by a commitment to severe self-discipline. <coughs> Excuse me. We see this in verses 20 to 22. Let me read that again. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. So the false teacher was trying to subject the Colossians to certain regulations regarding what you shouldn't eat or drink or what you shouldn't do, what you shouldn't participate in. He was imposing on Christians a set of strict disciplines and severe methods, all aimed at curbing the desires of the flesh. It was basically an approach of extreme avoidance and deprivation. If you, can, if you can just avoid sinful influences, if you could just deprive yourself of sinful opportunities, then you're told you won't sin. Well, consider the appeal of that, the appeal of this kind of commitment to severe self-discipline. You see, for many people who, who truly, sincerely do want to stop sinning, the advice to repent and believe, to trust in Jesus more, it just feels too simplistic. It feels too abstract. We feel like we need to do something. So when we're introduced to a highly disciplined method of dealing with sin and temptation, it's appealing to us because it seems to work. We've, we've all felt that urge to sin. We all know how strong temptation can be. And so any method of curbing our sinful desires through avoidance and deprivation seems to make a lot of sense. Don't watch those kinds of movies. Don't watch those kinds of shows. Don't listen to that kind of music. Do not associate with those kinds of people. Avoidance, deprivation. You would think that would be the most sensible and effective solution to stop sinning. But Paul would disagree. He would say that these severe methods of discipline may appear at first to work, but they ultimately fail to deal with sin at its root. Look with me at verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. His point is that this approach to dealing with sinful desires are merely self-made attempts that will ultimately fail. They won't do the job. These severe methods of self-discipline, yeah, they appear wise at first, but they turn out to, be, to express a superficial wisdom that fails to deal with sin at its root. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's because... It's because our battle against sin is ultimately a matter of the heart. In the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 7, 
Jesus was confronting the Pharisees who were holding on to the traditions of men in their attempts to remain clean, to remain pure of sin. And it really just boiled down to avoidance and deprivation, particularly when it came to ceremonial washings before you would eat. Jesus said, you're so worried about what you're putting into your body, but what defiles you is not what goes in, it's what's already there in your heart. It's the sin in your heart that defiles you. For with, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So all of our human efforts to deprive ourselves of the opportunity to sin are merely half measures. Friends, the battle must start in the heart. If you really think about it, avoidance and deprivation are poor solution. I mean, just, just imagine if, if your stove malfunctions and your kitchen catches on fire. Just closing all the doors leading to your kitchen and, and you know, stuffing wet towels under the cracks, that's not going to do. Just saying, I'm going to avoid going into my kitchen from now on, that's no solution. Your house is going to burn down. Avoidance and deprivation is only going to prolong the inevitable. Friends, in the same way, you have to realize that sin burns wildly in the human heart. And so if your method of dealing with sin amounts to, to avoidance and deprivation, to self-imposed regulations and, 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 and severe self-discipline, you're going to find yourself outgunned in the fight. Sin is burning hot in your heart, and you won't stand a chance unless you fight fire with fire. Think about it this way. If you've been keeping up with the news, you know that forest fires are a big concern for people in California right now. It reminds me of how some fires are fought and they are stopped by a technique called backburning. Backburning is where firefighters intentionally start small fires along a fire break on the path of the main fire. And once you burn away all the fuel, you burn away anything burnable, then when the main fire gets there, it's got nowhere to go because there's nothing left to burn. Christian, do you realize that in Christ, you've already been burned? You've been backburned. That's the point that Paul was making in verse 20. Look at verse 20. He says, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, if you've been burned at the cross with Christ, then why are you still trying to fight sin with asceticism? Why aren't you fighting fire with fire? Just avoiding sin and depriving yourself of opportunities to sin is not going to be enough. If you really want to stop the indulgence of the flesh, if you really want to resist the burning desires of sin, then in your heart you have to die with Christ. You have to identify 
with Christ in his death on the cross. That's really what it means to be a Christian. It means by faith you receive Jesus' death as your death. You now embrace the substance. And so, friends, if you are struggling with sin, if you really want to stop the indulgence of the flesh, don't bother with shadows. Go straight to the substance which belongs to Christ. Go to the gospel. Go to the good news that Christ was burned in your place. Trust in that gospel and you'll get a new heart, a heart burned with Christ, a heart refined by Christ, a heart made new in Christ. The battle is in the heart and the victory is in Christ. Father, we pray that you would take this word and you would remind us deeply, remind us clearly that in Christ, in his death and resurrection, we have all that we need. We have the fullness of your salvation. I pray, Lord, that we would come away with deeper love and greater faith in your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.